All right. <coughs> Good morning. Happy New Year, almost, right? Um, uh, so first I want to explain something. So we, um, this is this idea of allowing for Q&A from the audience. Why, <coughs> why would we do that? That's, this is outside of the box, especially if you've been a part of church your whole life or something. That's going to seem kind of strange to you, awkward to you, whatever. Um, especially, and for whatever reason, we're not a super demonstrative church. I don't know if you noticed that. We don't, like there's not a whole lot of, uh, of, of amens and you preach it and write on or word or whatever. That, all that's invited, by the way. You're welcome to... You're welcome for any of that <laughs> at any time. I appreciate all of that. <coughs> so, um, so that's the, all that. That's that's one. So that's going to seem extra difficult. Um, it may seem for some of you. Now, for those of you who come on on Wednesday nights, Wednesday nights, which is um, a, a smaller, not not ton smaller, a smaller group, a little more intimate. Um, well, we do Q and A time a lot. One of the reasons I like doing it um, is because it means I don't have to prepare a sermon. No, that's. <laughs> That's neither here nor there. The, the, the actual reason is, one, I, I think it's important that Christians understand that what we believe is a rational, um, sensical faith. That what we believe, there, there's answers to the questions we have. Now, there's plenty of things we don't have answers to, and that's fine too. But there's a lot of things we do. And I think so often in Christianity... We've been brought up with the mindset that kind of Christianity is this irrational kind of kind of insane faith that, that like, like um, <coughs> um, Mark Twain once said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Um, and and that's, that's just wrong. That's just, that's just flat error. Um, I don't know where he got that definition, but he should not believe it because it ain't so. That is a totally inaccurate perspective of, of what we believe and what the truth is. Um, so that's, that's one. I will tell you, I, I enjoy it as well because I, the, for the same reason that we had um, a few Sundays ago, we had an atheist literally on stage on a Sunday night um, engaging and answering questions is because I want, I want you to know we don't have to be afraid of things like this. We don't have to be afraid of the things we don't know the answers to. It may be that we don't know the answers to them and no one does except God, and that's fine. We can, we can live with that. But I think it's important that we recognize this isn't something we have to be afraid of. And I think for so many Christians, the thought of <coughs> being on stage being asked questions or being in a situation where you're being asked questions is so terrifying, <coughs> not because you don't have the right answer, but because you at some level in your heart are afraid there isn't one. And, and I, don't, I don't want that to be the case for anybody here. <coughs> That's not necessary for Christians. Um, we can be confident that there are answers to the questions um, that we have. Even if sometimes it, it is that, that we don't know the exact answer to that question. And that's, that's true of every other science, every other belief. There's going to be things we're not going to know for sure. We can deal with that. <clears throat> but that's, that's a big part of it. Um, I do like the practice of, of, of you being more comfortable kind of making noise in church. I think that's healthy as well. Um, we, don't, we don't want, thank you. Um, we, don't, uh, we don't want people to think of this as a, as a stiff or stuffy place because it isn't, right? It isn't. And yet sometimes if you're here in during the service, it can feel like, oh, we're all supposed to, now's when we're supposed to be perfectly still and, and not make any. And, and so part of that is as well, you know, we're not, we're not afraid of the noises and movements that kids make or, or ADD adults like me. That's, that's all normal. But like, we're okay with that. And so that's, that's part of it as well. I want there to be a sense of, 
um, that, that this is a family. We can engage at that level, um, all that kind of stuff. So, <clears throat> and also um, knowing that we were likely to have, um, although it's not, it doesn't look like a whole lot smaller crowd on this morning, that we would have a smaller crowd this morning compressing to one service, um, which some of you are thinking like, we ought, aren't we ready? Could we, couldn't we compress to one service as it is? Um, just so you'll know, um, the answer to that is no, not because we might not be able to fit all the people who come to the worship service on Sunday morning into one service. That's not why we broke into two services as it was. We did it for adult education. Um, if you can imagine, we would have to cancel more than half of the adult um, Sunday morning life group classes if we went back to one class time and one, one meeting time. So anyway, um, there's a lot of advantages to having two anyway, as some of you are very much so depending, especially if you have little kids like today, only second. This today, we're we're going to first, and then we're done. Or like, however, or we're going to do both, or whatever. So we have we do have life groups and stuff running on Sunday morning, and at all kinds of other times as well. Make sure you're part of that if you want to grow in fellowship here. So, um, <coughs> also, <coughs> I'll go ahead and put this in. I'm doing much better than last week. I'm less likely to die on stage this week than I was last week. <laughs> I know, Amen. Um, and so, um, uh, that's a. Um, uh, but at the same time, I'm noticing the, uh, the uh, whole PJ thing. So John and I talked yesterday, and we're just trying to decide, like, do we wear PJs? And so for the kids, knowing that some of the kids would be, and even some of the kids wouldn't be, and probably none of the adults would, no matter what we say we're going to do. And, and on top of that, I thought it would probably be tough for you to take anything I said seriously if I was wearing these <laughs> anyway. So they are awesome. I totally agree. I love these things, but... Um, Again, that, that line between we don't take ourselves seriously and irreverent is a fine one sometimes. And um, On our website, one of our kind of little mini mottos is that we take Jesus very seriously. We take God's word very seriously. We take worshiping our king very seriously, but we don't take ourselves very seriously. Um, and so uh, all of that is, even what comes across as unintentional is probably intentional. So I did get one question um, texted to me this morning, so I'm going to answer it first. Um, again, this isn't, this isn't um, meant to somehow put me out there as the, as the world's expert on things. Um, I'm certainly not. I'm just comfortable asking, answering questions. Um, the reason I do this is because I'm uncomfortable answering questions. There are many people who are more, have much more expertise, especially in specific areas that we might talk about this morning, that are in the room. But they may not feel as comfortable to get up on stage and talk about these things. And so, um, totally fine. But um, I would tell you, that's, that's not it. This isn't what we do with the youth. Most summers at summer camp, we do a game called Stump the Chump, and I'm the chump, and they, they try to ask me questions that I can't answer. Um, and that's different. That's not what this is about. This is more informational. I mean, you can take it that direction, I guess, if you want to. But um, okay, so the question was, <coughs> the question was, they got texted this morning, was do we know how long, I'm going to pull it up, make sure I've got it exactly right. Do we know how long Adam and Eve lived in the garden before they fell? And so the quick, for those of you I don't want to assume anything, the quick <clears throat> story is the account that we have in Genesis. And keep in mind that, that especially deep passages in the Old Testament, there's lots of different theories on all of them. And so we have to engage with the Bible as what it is. And sometimes we don't know what different passages are. You've heard me say before, if I come home and find a love poem from my wife. I'm hanging on the refrigerator, and, and it says um, eggs and diapers and milk and sandwich meat. And, and I'm trying to read into it and go like, what is she saying about our love with this love poem? Like, what am I, what am I supposed to be getting from this? 
I'm going to make a lot of mistakes because I'm not engaging with that, obviously, grocery list in the right form of literature. And the Bible has numerous different forms of literature in it. As Americans and Westerners, we want to treat everything as though it comes from a history textbook with little bolded print words that are in the glossary at the end. That's how we want to treat everything that's written at all times. It's not how Jews wrote. Um, it's not how Jews wrote in the, in the first century. It's not how they wrote long before that. It's not even how Greeks wrote. It, this is, that is, that's a mistake for us to assume that everything that was written in the Bible is written by a Westerner because actually nothing written in the Bible is written by a Westerner. And so we have to engage with different parts of speech. And so, for example, we don't know to what degree the writers of Genesis saw Genesis as history versus what they saw it as teaching. Um, in fact, let me, let me give you an example that just came up this morning that was awesome. Karen uh, McKibben handed me a, a sheet about the, the, uh, the dogwood tree, the legend of the dogwood tree. As Christians, because we're good Westerners, we're not content very often with having a good parable in front of us. Okay, we, we're not content with that. And so for, throughout, throughout the years, what Christians do is we take something that's a, a beautiful parable, a teachable moment, and we have to make it, we have to embellish it. <coughs> so <coughs> we end up with something like <coughs> the legend of the dogwood tree, which is a beautiful parable and a great picture. And I think I'll even use it um, when we get there again at, at Easter time. I think that'd be really cool. But, but so you'll know, um, dogwoods don't grow in, in the Middle East. Jesus was not crucified on a dogwood tree. I mean, unless, a, unless a, a large sparrow gripped a seed by its husk and flew all the way over the, and dropped it, and, they got, they, and you'd have to have a bunch of them because they're, they're nasty little trees, and they've always, by the way, been nasty little trees. They're not, that didn't happen because Jesus was crucified on one of them. They weren't cursed. Like, none of this is in the Bible, but that doesn't mean that the production of the flower that we have on the dogwood tree isn't a beautiful parable and a teachable moment about the cross. Do you see the distinction? Like we can take a dogwood flower and talk about what looks like rust or blood stains on the corner, what looks like a crown in the middle, a white cross that is produced, red berries that grow on it um, like that look like drops of blood. Like there's a beautiful thing to be taught through that. Let's settle with the fact that it's a beautiful parable it's a great picture. It's a wonderful teachable moment without turning it into kind of an old wives' tale about, and that's why dogwoods grow stunted is because they were cursed after they were used to crucify Jesus on, and all that's reverse history and not accurate. So, but we can still take something that, that is teachable without it having to become something that is scientific fact. And, but we, because we're Westerners, we, we can't stand one without the other. Like we we have such a hard time with, with them both having truth there without them being identical. That's hard for us. So when we're looking in the book of Genesis, you're not going to find a lot of the historical scientific answers that you want because they're not there, and it wasn't necessarily even written to be that way. We have to be okay with that. So when we look at this, how long were Adam and Eve in the garden before they fell? This is a story. The account of Adam and Eve is that God created Adam, and then in a separate act of creation created Eve, and then they were, Adam was given the instruction, you can eat anything in the garden except fruit from one tree, by the way, which was almost certainly not an apple. Those also do not grow in the Middle East, um, anywhere over there. It was a, probably a fig. When you, tell, when you say fruit in that language, they mean fig. So probably a fig, although we don't know. It was a long time ago. <coughs> but apple, mm, almost certainly not. Um, so, sorry, I'm, I'm like cognitive dissonance all over the place, aren't you? Um, so, 
so this is, they, they, then, and then Adam, Eve goes and is tempted by a serpent, and the serpent kind of tricks her, tempts her into eating the fruit. She then takes it to Adam. He eats the fruit. And this represents the, the, the fall of mankind. This is when God did, the man has only, he only has one rule. He is a moral free agent. He can obey or disobey. Nothing else he would do would possibly be sin except one thing, obey or disobey on this topic. He disobeys. So he disobeys, which puts a rift between God and man. God has now rebelled against, I mean, man has now rebelled against God, and this rift is created. Now, how long, the question is, how long from the time Adam and Eve were created until the actual fall? What's the gap there? And the answer is we have absolutely no clue. We can't possibly know that. The Bible doesn't reference it at all. What it does tell us is the age of Adam when he died. Now, some people would say you wouldn't start counting that until he fell because he wouldn't have aged until then. That's very possible, or at least plausible. And so you wouldn't have started counting. We know he's 930 years old um, when he finally um, died. Find that in... It's in Genesis 5, if I remember correctly. In Genesis 5, we see that he was 930 years old. So... um, so does that count? Was that part of that time during his time in the garden? We don't know. Um, did that counting start when they fell? We really don't know. So it's, it is plausible that Adam and Eve lived in the garden for millennia. It's at least possible that they lived in the garden for millennia before they fell. If they weren't aging and if nothing was dying, if that's what you believe about those passages, that nothing's dying and all that, then it could have been a long, long time. And some people would even use that as a theory to explain why the earth seems so much older than the six to 10,000 years that are accounted for in genealogies, is that no one started counting at zero, they started counting at the fall. <clears throat> why not? There's lots of good theories about those distinctions. A lot of them, actually, I like that co- topic. I used to write about that topic a lot, so I have some questions. I have some spots on the website. If that's, fa- if that's interesting to you, there's a number of different writers about that, lots of different views. None of them are, you don't have to have a certain view on that before you become a Christian, by the way. You can believe the earth is very, very young or the earth is very, very old and you're still within biblical rights and you're allowed to put your faith in Jesus Christ, no matter what you believe about that. You don't have to have that first. Yes, thank you. Cooper's getting this. Good, man. Thank you. Okay, y'all should grab some mics. Mark and Cooper grab a couple mics. What other questions we got? Your wife wants me to get this to you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Somebody run back there with the he's, he's loud, but he can be. We want him on the we want him on the recording for posterity's sake. Thank you. So, uh, with it being the last day of 2017, I just feel like it's very important that we just make sure. Is there anybody's birthday that we need to recognize? I actually probably. think there probably is. Um, we do have a gentleman in the church who. Um, is uh, to the degree I've, I've been able to stay sane as a pastor. I think Bobby Hicks deserves some of the credit or responsibility for that. And it is, in fact, Bobby Hicks' birthday. Stand up, Bobby. Thank you, Bobby Hicks. Those of you who, those of you who know, know how much appreciation we could give to Bobby and, and be cool with that. Uh, those of you who don't know, just trust me, um, we all can give a lot of appreciation to Bobby for the way he helps lead and serve in this church um, in amazing ways. Um, 
I would, I would duplicate him in uh, just about all of us. To be perfectly honest, I think I would just, you know, replace all of us with Bobby if it was, a, if it was an option. So thank you, sir. Happy birthday. Um, okay. I guess, should we, should we sing? Should we? Is, somebody, is okay. today somebody's anniversary? Is today somebody's anniversary? I don't know. Is today somebody's anniversary? Yesterday was mine, if that's what you're hinting at. <laughs> Yesterday was mine, 24, 24 years. <laughs> Everybody's looking at Ginger and applauding. That's exactly appropriate, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, we got, we got some hands. Guys, go find the people with the hands sticking up there. Um, run, Cooper, run. There's someone right here. Squeeze in there. All righty, what question do we have? I think there was one back there too, Mark. There was another hand back there somewhere. Why? Well, <laughs> You're on mic. Yeah. I actually have two questions. Yes, ma'am? First, I want to ask John if mm -hmm. I can get a copy of that song you sang. Because <laughs> I lead the music at my church. Oh, fantastic. Um, I was reading in my uh, devotional last night when the Holy City comes down. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jesus and God the Father are one, but the presence of the Holy Father and the presence of Jesus are described yes. there. So I need an explanation. Okay, so we're going to explain the Trinity here. Just take a minute <laughs> and explain the Trinity. Um, I actually, I actually will, will give you an answer that I think will satisfy you. And by the way, if you've got a hand, go ahead and raise it so the guys can come find you. Um, so the answer uh, that I'm going to give you in the simplest terms is um, there's, there's a, and, and there aren't such a thing for this, but um, when we talk in terms of, this is what's been understood since for a long, long time about the Trinity <coughs> that isn't taught very much anymore, <coughs> is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit share the same essence so let me explain what essence means. So if, if I, real quickly, if I draw a circle, if I had a board up here and I drew a circle, and I, and I said, what is this? You would all say, circle. circle, good. Now, let's say I found a purple pen and I drew another one and I drew it purple. What would you say it was then? A circle. Because color is not an essential trait of circle. Um, that's called an accidental trait. It, that does, it's not an accident. It just means not essential. So purple, a, a circle can be any color and still be a circle, right? So let's say, then I draw a really big one. Now what is it? Still a circle, right? You could use a descriptor. You could say it's a big circle, but it's still a circle. Now I'm going to draw a circle with four corners. Okay? Now what do I have? A square. Because, you know, you're, none, you're not all good postmoderns. Like uh, the, the young people in the room were like, hey, if he says it's a circle, don't, it's his art, right? <laughs> if he says it's a circle, just draw a square. And call it circle. And everybody be like, hey, he drew it. Right? Because the narrative matters more, more than the essence. So here you have, so, because round is an essential trait of circle. Um, color isn't, size isn't, location isn't, but, but round is. All the things that have to be in order to be God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit share. They have the same essence as God. And by the way, that's a unique essence. Only the three in one, only one God can have the essence of God. But God can have multiple persons, apparently, and still be God. That's like color, or that's like shape. I mean, not, excuse me, that's like size. 
So he can be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and still be one God because the essential traits are the same. One of the things that we apparently learned from God revealing himself, because we'd have no reason to think of God as a trinity except for him telling us he was, um, <coughs> is, that, is that God reve can reveal himself simultaneously in the three different persons. He does it all the time. For example, somebody think about what is the role of the triune God in prayer? So think about verses that we have. So we pray, we pray, what, is, what does the Bible tell us about some things that we pray that might involve Jesus Christ or God the Father or God the Spirit? What's that? Okay, so we're praying like Jesus prayed to the Father, and we pray according to the Father's will, right? So what else? We pray in the name of Jesus, because Jesus said to his disciples, the things you ask in my name will be given to you. So we ask in his name. That's, that's, so we do it in his name and in the, according to the Father's will. Simultaneously, we do that. What does the Spirit do for our prayers? He groans. He, he essentially, he replaces our words. We pray, and the Spirit interprets our prayer, because you can imagine how terrible our prayers really are, Right? I mean, every one of our prayers, the Spirit's like, no, no, he, that's, not, that's not what he means. <laughs> Groaning probably means like, oh, golly, right? He's asking for that again. Anyway, so, so he, the Spirit interprets to the Father for us, and Jesus intercedes for us, and the Father gives good gifts. That's, those are independent and yet integrated concepts. <clears throat> so that God the Father, God the Holy Son, and God the... And so God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit could be revealed. God the Father is this glorious light. I'm sitting on the throne. I'm casting in every direction. Um, as That's the physical expression of his presence. God the Son's physical expression of his presence is in the book of Revelation. Sometimes it's a little slain lamb. And, and either at the same time or at different times, it's this, this monstrosity with the white hair and the flaming, I mean, and the sword and the flaming eyes and the burning feet. Those are just expressions. God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere. For him to give an expression, a physical or a visual expression of himself is going to always be for the sake of the audience. Um, that's for our sake or for the angel's sake or for creation's sake. He doesn't need that. He did not... He did not, it's hard to talk in past, it's hard to talk in tense with God, but before the creation of time, God would not have had need for any physical representation. Um, he did that himself. But it is a, it's a fascinating study. I'm actually going to be teaching this, starting in like February, Trinitarianism, um, a 20-hour theology class, sorry, for women only, um, called Womenary, that you can look up online at womenary.com if you're interested in that. And it'll be, go, we'll be going in-depth um, you can even buy the audio of it if you want to, I think, at womenary.com. But um, it's a great question. So when we see that, and boy, what a fun passage that is, right? Revelation 19 through 21 is just heart enriching. So, hey, I got the boys set down, but I don't know. Yes? I had an interesting conversation with a friend who is not Baptist, but mm -hmm. she believes that when we die, we go to sleep. Uh -huh. And we don't go to heaven until the second coming. She, right. do, she doesn't believe in the rapture. My question is, do we go to sleep <laughs> or do we go straight to heaven well, when we die? Question. I'm glad you guys are sticking to the easy stuff. I really appreciate that. Where's my Star Wars question? Come on, somebody throw me a bone. Um, 
So um, the Bible actually leaves room for both. And so you have different people, different students of the Bible, different scholars who come to different conclusions. That, so the two different theories are essentially to use the colloquial terms. One is called the holding tank theory. And there's all different versions of that. But that is that when you die, your soul and your spirit or whatever immediately goes to some place, some spiritual place. Um, heaven, paradise, Abraham's bosom, whatever language you want to give it. If, you're, if you are a saved person. Hades or hell if you are an unsaved person. And that's where you go until the final judgment when the new Jerusalem is created and this is emptied to the new Jerusalem and this is emptied to the lake of fire. That is one basic theory. Now there's lots within that. And there's good arguments for that. For example, the, the best one is the parable that Jesus tells of Lazarus and the rich man where Lazarus um, is a poor man. It's not the same Lazarus who rose from the dead. Lazarus is just the name Jesus gives for a man in a parable. Um, if somebody can find real quick where that is, so I don't have to search for it, so I can throw out the reference for where the parable of Lazarus and the rich man is, I'd appreciate it. Um, um, and so he, what happens is the, the rich man dies and, and goes to hell. And he is in hell, and his family is still alive on earth because he wants to send warning to them. So clearly, while there are still people alive on earth, there is someone in hell, and Lazarus is with Abraham, is in Abraham's bosom, to use the terminology, the, the Hebrew. Yep. Luke 16. Now, um, there's also problems with the, that theory. The other theory is called the sleep theory, or the soul sleep theory. And that is, and which is what the Hebrews believed. The Hebrews believed in soul sleep, um, apparently. And so what happens is when you die, you die, and your soul just rests until the trumpet sounds, and then the dead in Christ rise and go to meet Christ in the air, whether that's rapture or not. Um, you can have either one of these views and believe whatever you want to about a rapture. Neither one of them cancels out a rapture belief. So <coughs> uh, I will tell you, I am very much so 50-50 on this. Um, I, can, I can argue either one of them very, very well. Um, but because I'm 50-50 on it, you're not going to see me take a stance on it at all. Because I think both are very plausible, and the only way to check is to die. <laughs> and so, um, and, and I don't think Jesus' death experience was common. So I don't, I don't know, and we don't even know a lot what happened with Jesus after he died um, for the three days that he was in the grave. And so we don't, we don't really know much about that either. One of the problems, one of the challenges that is for me, that the whole, you go to a holding tank, whether that's in the Roman Catholic world, you know, um, purgatory or, or whatever the different views are. Um, purgatory is, has no biblical basis at all. Um, but the, the other two views potentially um, is that that means people like Lazarus were called from heaven back to earth. And that always seems problematic to me. Like that would be a major bummer um, to be Lazarus, to be dead for four days and have Jesus to call you out of the grave. And you'd be like, what? I mean, what, who'd you do that for again? Because you, did, you didn't do it for me. Um, and so there's some, there's some passages that, that, both, that create problems for both sides. Um, and so I think we're left with uncertainty. I, I am, whichever one brings people the most comfort while on earth, I'm fine, absolutely fine with. Um, whether you believe your friends and family have beat you to heaven and they're with Jesus right now, that is super comforting. 
whether you think you're all going to get there at the same time and get to rejoice anew for the first time together after a long rest. Um, I don't know, with five kids, a long rest doesn't sound so bad right now. <laughs> um, so either, either one. The answer is, I cannot find absolute doctrinal certainty on either one. Great cases for both, and I can argue either one, and so I'm, I'm stuck there. I don't mean that to be offensive to anybody. In whatever one you are most comfortable with, you have good scriptural foundations for. Now, if you believe something else like reincarnation or some of that kind of stuff, then you don't have any biblical foundation for the other different thoughts that people have that happen after death. The book of Hebrews is abundantly clear. Um, somebody can look this one up for me, too, because I don't remember off the top of my head, but... Um, Everyone must die once, and then comes judgment. Um, there's no room in the book of Hebrews for reincarnation. So, yes. Next. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So, do most churches have ladies that serve on their deacon board? Why or why not? And yep. then what's the, the basis? And I'm great with our ladies being on it. Just yeah. wanted to say it, but <laughs> curious on the background and the biblical there. Um, we're going to be praying for you guys at the end of the service, by the way. This is, this is their last Sunday here. Unrelated, Unrelated to that. Unrelated. Yeah. <laughs> they've, they've had it. They've had it and they're leaving. No. Um, um, no, Robert Christie have been key members and a very important part of our church for a long time and God's called them someplace else. So we'll pray over them in a, in a little bit. Um, in fact, that reminds me, I've got to keep an eye on the time. So we start at 1030. Yeah. Well, I've got about 10 more minutes. Okay, so, um, so to go through this one quickly, so you'll know I'm actually just finished and I'm going to publish a series of articles as to why I'm comfortable with the way our church does it. The, again, this is one of those that there's huge room in the Bible. Um, the main, the, but the specifically you asked about deacons, women being in the role of deacons. Um, the main thing is so that the, the reason there's a question at all is because of the Timothy and Titus passage, which references that a deacon is to, quote, be the is to be the, quote, husband of one wife. Um, now, is that passage supposed to say, in other words, no women? Um, and there's been great debate about this probably since the time soon after Paul died as to the exact application of some of this. <coughs> but the main issue, especially in regards to deacons, is that in Romans chapter 16, Paul specifically references a deacon named Phoebe and honors her. And so it is clearly a woman who is, and, and the word there, what's funny is I, had, I heard a debate on this. Um, not a debate. That sounds professional or intentional. Just two people arguing about it. And one guy said like, yeah, but in the Greek, it's deaconess there. It's not deacon, it's deaconess, diakoness. Um, that, that, that is the Greek word, diakoness. E-S-S does not imply gender in Greek. It's diakoness is the word that means servant. And that's, that's what we, we very much so embrace here. That's the role of deacons here is to serve. That Paul who wrote First and Second, First Timothy and Titus and says the husband of one wife references Phoebe in Romans 16 as a woman who he honors as a deacon. Now, it could just mean servant, but that's being pretty, <coughs> I don't know what the right word would be, um, uncautious of Paul to use the word diaconus for a woman if he just means servant, he could have used doulos or any other, any other word. He uses the same word. So that's why we would say the Bible leaves total space for women to be in the role of deacon. There are churches who don't think that. They may be right. We may be right. We are all within the bounds of what scripture allows. 
Um, I've, been, I've worked at churches that very much so would have said no women in roles of leadership. No women could teach classes that had men in it. Um, no women could, I mean, these, these were very clearly de- delineated. And some churches that do that, they have good case to make based on Paul's teaching. <clears throat> I also think that the view of saying we can't have women in certain roles of leadership, we can't have women in roles of deacons, we can't have women teach classes, we also have, I think all of those are biblically, um, there's room for all of them biblically. Um, and, and it may be that there's not, a right, not necessarily a right or wrong answer to that. That's a great question. And I literally just finished it probably in the next month. Those are going to show up on my website published like that. So good question. Yes. I believe the Bible is the infallible word of God, but I uh-huh. struggle with understanding which interpretation, which, you know, is the most accurate. And if there's some that are more accurate in certain aspects or verses, how do I know that that other translation is one that I should be reading at all? And how is it infallible? And Good. how do I speak with my devout Catholic friend who has a completely different scripture that she's going by? Right. She doesn't have the, the same books. And I, I <clears throat> kind of under, I, I want to dive in head first, but I want to make sure I'm in the most accurate spot. And how do you figure out which that is? Great questions. So this is a really common question um, among Christians who actually read their Bible. Um, and so that's, which is an important part of this. So the question, you, you use the word interpretation. I think you meant the word translation. Um, interpretation is us trying to understand what the Bible means. Translation is just taking it from one language to another. So a fundamental educational moment, <clears throat> the Bible was not written in English. No part of it was written in English, like, like none. There's literally not a single English word in the originals. Um, since English didn't exist as a language at that time, it would have been really tough. Um, it was written primarily in Hebrew and Greek, although there's some Aramaic and some other little languages mixed in there as well every once in a while. But those are typically, the Old Testament was mostly Hebrew, the New Testament was mostly Greek. And so that's, that's, what we, that's how we interpret it, translate it from those languages into a new language, which does require some interpretation, but translations we're talking about. So we have all these translations, Right. Um, those of you, I mean, all the King James, all the King James people in the room can, you know, shout thou or something and uh, all together, right? The, um, and a lot of people still read King James because it's what they grew up with. Um, it's actually not the best translation out there by any means um, for numerous reasons. The most important is the three best copies, the three best ancient copies we have of the New Testament were discovered after the King James was translated. And so we have to do a lot of research to come up with good translations. Now, the New King James takes those into account, and so it's a better translation. Um, If you're trying to read for readability's sake, then the New Living Translation. um, The Living Bible is a paraphrase, not a translation, but the New Living is a translation taken from the ancient languages. It's very readable. Obviously, NIV, um, which gets mocked openly and deservedly by scholars at times. We used to call it the nearly inerrant version um, or the nearly inspired version in seminary. Um, but it is very readable and is, it is going to be accurate. It's not going to steer you wrong. You're not going to read the NIV and have like bad doctrine. It's, it's still pretty, it's still going to be. Um, I read, I use the ESV. It's a very literal interpretation. It's a good one for me to use in studying. Um, but there's uh, honestly, so many of them are so good 
um, of the English standard, the Christian standard, um, <coughs> the New American standard. <coughs> Sorry. These are all, they're all good translations. The, the really cool thing is a few Monday, a few Wednesday nights, and you can find this on the website at southspring.org under teaching. Um, I actually went through how I study, how I prepare for a sermon, and then Paul McKenzie talked about how he studies on the, on the next week to prepare to teach. And, and we have so many good resources now um, with the internet, like Bible Hub is such a brilliant resource that it just lists commentaries out and compares them for you. It's beautiful. You can now look up easily the original words and the arguments about why they get translated different ways nowadays. So um, talking with a friend who has a different translation of the Bible, the, the Roman Catholic world has their own translation. Um, many of the cults have their own translations. Um, what you want to be able to do then is to take them back to the original because they all allegedly come from the same original. Um, they don't all use the same original with, res with equal respect. Um, but they allegedly come from the original. And nowadays you can do that, either through an email to a pastor or a teacher or through doing research online yourself. Um, it's really pretty cool. So I'm a big fan of the ESV. For me, it's very readable. It may not be for somebody else. I would say the version of the Bible that is accurate and that you will read uh, because it is not a magic tome. You cannot hang it in your house and chase away evil spirits. You will not become more godly by owning a Bible. You can grow in godliness by reading it. And as far as, in, in, as, far as inerrancy or infallibility, uh, remember, we're, we would be talking about the originals, and we don't have any of the originals. So everything we have is at least a copy. That doesn't make it less trustworthy. These people copied it very carefully, very intentionally. There's a whole bunch of, we could spend hours and hours talking about just that. In fact, we're going to try to bring in a guy. Do you remember what week that is? Off the top of my head. Um, we had a guy come in a few years ago who has a whole bunch of ancient Bibles, um, and he talks through some of this stuff, and we're going to have him come in sometime in the new year. I can't remember when, and he's going to come and talk about some of these very questions, uh, I think, which would be really cool. Um, is there another short one? Because we need to wrap up. Somebody got a super, another short, right here? Okay, this is, this is kind of short. I don't, I don't believe you this is going to be short. So. Um, uh, I've been interacting with some folks online and uh, just come more face-to-face -face with uh, the need for applied apologetics. Uh, it's, it's interesting to do apologetics with other Christians. Mm -hmm. But uh, as you referenced at the beginning of uh, your time with us today, you talked about, uh, <coughs> well, I'm, I'm going to re just refer to it as a hostile environment that we're becoming more and more so. And I think most of us, or many of us anyway, seem to be kind of unaware I appreciate, I was unable to be here when you had the atheist here. Uh, right. Sorry I missed that. But uh, anyway, I was just thinking about how can we, as the body of Christ moving forward into this new year, uh, intentionally bring applied apologetics into being? Let me give a quick, a quick answer, then we'll wrap up on that. Apologetics, theology, is broken into three headings. The study of God, theology, the study of God is broken into three headings. One is called doctrine, meaning conversations about God between believers. So if you and I are talking, we're, we're having a doctrinal conversation because we're both believers. If you're talking to a non-believer, that's called apologetics from the Greek word apologeia, meaning reason or answer. <clears throat> from 1 Peter 3, 15, it talks about that we should be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within us. Um, 
That's when you're talking to a non-believer. That's going to be a very different question. Um, unless they want to talk about why, why women are deacons or not deacons, probably not a direction you want to take the conversation. Not very valuable to them. Great conversation for Christians to have, not all that valuable for a non-believer. That doesn't help them move nearer to Christ. Apologetics is that. Now, the third one is ethics, which means how to live out that faith, what we believe. <clears throat> but I would say, um, I would recommend that any Christian um, be prepared, as First Peter tells us, to be prepared to give an answer in and out of season for the reason um, that we have hope. If you don't know that, there are, one, we talk about it, I weave it into a lot of sermons. We often have life groups that focus attention on those topics, either studying those books. Um, there's great, there's so many great resources out there um, that I wouldn't even know, I, I mean, I could start listing some if you're ready for them, but <coughs> we could post them. But <coughs> obviously, the stuff that Josh McDowell has written is a great way to get started. More than a carpenter, um, evidence that man's a verdict, um, Strobel. Keller, um, Dr. William Lane Craig, who's my personal favorite. Um, there's so many great authors out there that you can read. Um, you, there's pod, free podcasts like crazy by these people as well. I'm a big fan of Reasonable Faith um, with William Lane Craig, which is a free podcast you can listen to. And he's the top Christian, um, or, uh, my opinion, the top Christian apologist, but he's at least the top Christian debater um, out there today. So there's so much, there's no reason why we couldn't learn more and more about this. I'd really recommend it. So um, anyway, let's, um, if you will, let's, let's pray together. Thank you. This has been fun. We can do this um, on Wednesday nights. We do it regularly. I don't cease to exist and, and neither do it. There's a lot of other people with great answers in the room. Send an email um, or, or stop or call or, or whatever. Um, I know there's a lot, and these are great questions. If you're a guest with us, um, this isn't normally what it looks like, but um, we're, we're very proud that you've been with us. Here today, we would invite you to go back and get a get a gift from us, and let us let us tell you how proud we are that you've been here. And um, so we're gonna we're gonna pray and then sing. And you are welcome um, when we in a second. If if you're ready, if you're someone who who has been coming and you're ready to join the church, um, you can do that today as well. Even though it's the 31st, and uh, and so you can you can join today. Just get in, just under the wire. You get to be a member in 2017, um, the founding year of the church. Uh, and so <clears throat> we'd be proud for you to be a part of that. And if you need to come pray about anything or you need to talk to God about anything, I don't know how the Spirit might have moved you. Um, the verse that I referenced, uh, which is a good one to have in mind, Hebrews 9, 27, and just as it, is, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Um, we do have this awesome, amazing God who is our friend, who is our brother, who is all these things, and is also our king and God and judge and... Um, so I recommend you get to know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this chance to gather. Thank you for this chance to uh, discuss stuff, to look at these questions. Thank you for um, the leadership um, and the service of so many in our church. Um, God, we have so many deacons who serve so well. We have so many um, people who lead so well. God, I do, I do thank you in particular for Bobby today and for his friendship um, and devotion to you and how that's been poured out on me as well. Um, I pray that you would guide our, our, the rest of our time and help us to be focused on you as we move into this new year. Um, Father, we are so proud to be a part of what you're doing and what you continue to do. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.